And now let's try and tune in to no good music from an undisclosed location somewhere in New Jersey. That style, playing guitar. When that comes on, you're out on the dance floor. Miami still rocks, man. Am I going to listen to this again? And it's definitely going to be a theme. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make this shit up. No. This is Rob and Jeremy, and we are on, what show are we on? 45. Today, our main topic is the Elvis movie, King Creole, which is Jeremy's first Elvis movie. First ever Elvis movie. That is correct. But as always, before we get into the main topic, we have some other things to talk about first. And to go with the movie, which came out in 1958. We have the top 10 from the week ending July 15th, sorry, July 5th, 1958. The top 10 list. And Jeremy's going to start us off if he can find If I can find the list. I just closed out of it. I didn't mean to do that. Well, I could tell you what it is. Well, I know the number 10 was Rebel Rouser. Yeah. Which was an instrumental only song. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that on a top 10 list, to be honest with you. Uh, by Dwayne Eddy. Who is still alive. Really? He's 80, 85. Okay, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. It was released in 1958, which obviously, what do we, would you mm-hmm. say it was 45 years ago, 50 years ago, something like that? 58 would be 65. 65 years yeah. ago. Look at that. Holy shit. That's actually older than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's older than me. Nice. And it's the first out of three on this list that are instrumentals. Yes. Which is very odd. Because you don't hear any instrumentals that are in the... No. The first time I ever heard an instrumental song was on, like, Jock Jams, that uh, Rock and Roll 2. <laughs> jock Jams. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, we have a beer here to go with the oh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I've had this before. It's really good. By um, Brew Dog. Says live fast, drink slow, and it's Elvis juice. Mm. We're not making this up. No, it's a grapefruit infused IPA. And um, where is this from? Who knows? I think this is my favorite part. You trying to read the can and figure out exactly where you. Got I know. It from, I did where it was created at. Very small writing. I don't know. And this red and white striped can is not exactly easy. I don't to think read. it tells <laughs> us. Oh, anyway, brew dog. Wherever you are. Yeah. Oh, Ohio. Sorry. Oh, God. There we go. So it's going to suck. Everything out of Ohio. <laughs> no, oh, actually. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not many beers that I've tried out of Ohio. I'm a Michigan fan. I have to say that by default. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, mm. Rebel Rouser. Do you want me to tell you about it? Yeah. I, <laughs> I liked it for an instrumental. Um, actually, the one note I had for this song was... In a sense, as you started to get into it, it was over. <laughs> yeah. Because it was so short. I've found that it's 
pretty much the same notes over and over, but there are three different like key changes in the song. And there's a sax solo in the middle. Yes, that was my favorite part. And it's by a guy named Gil Bernal. Okay. And he was on Warren Zevon's last album, Ooh. The Wind, from maybe, 2003, that long ago. Maybe the werewolves took him. Yeah, Warren Zevon's been gone for 20 years now. So this was written by Dwayne Eddy and Lee Hazelwood, who most famously wrote, These Boots Are Made For Walking. And that's now, what they did. <laughs> now, most people think this is, was based on When the Saints Go Marching In. Dwayne Eddy says it was based on who's going to, who's, <laughs> this is a weird song, name of a song. Who's going to shoe your pretty little feet? It's an old folk song uh, from Tennessee, Ernie Ford. So that's number 10. Number nine, we had Secretly, written by Al Hoffman, Dick Manning, Mark Markwell, and Hugo Peretti. Uh, but this version was done by Jimmy Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. There wasn't a lot to. There wasn't a lot to the. I'm. It's a nice song. Every song on the list was very short, which yeah. was a theme mm -hmm. at this time. So going into it, I kind of knew I was listening to a bunch of two-minute songs. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it, uh, trying to keep it down to a certain amount of time. Yeah, you know, for the radio. <laughs> yes, I thought it kind of sounded like a Ricky Nelson song. Not Rick Nelson, Ricky Nelson. And it reminded me, there's a song by the Crest called Silhouette, mm -hmm. Silhouettes. In the lyrics, it says, wish we didn't have to meet secretly. So either it's an 18-year-old dating a 13-year-old, or she could be an older married woman. I don't know. Uh, what do we have? Number eight, sorry. Endless Sleep. Oh, this is a weird one. By Jody Reynolds, yeah. <laughs> Very weird one. I, uh, I actually... This was probably my least favorite song of the 10 mm -hmm. on the list. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It was, again, another short, quick song, but I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. And Jody is a man, by the way. Yes. Yeah, it's about a guy discovering his girlfriend has drowned herself. Uh, Come join me, baby, in my endless sleep. He seems to hear, I don't know if the sea is talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> and he does save her. Supposedly... He wrote the song after listening to Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, interesting. And the, the record companies initially rejected the song as too depressing. So he eventually had a demo accepted by Demon Records in Los Angeles, and, who agreed that Reynolds record it, provided that he changed the song's ending so that the girl is saved. Because I guess the original, she was not saved. Oh, okay. Hmm. And interesting, I found that Billy Idol, I didn't listen to it, but Billy Idol did a version of the song. <laughs> interesting. I can't even imagine what that would have sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number seven was actually probably my favorite song on the list. All I Have to Do is Dream by the Everly Brothers. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I really enjoy the Everly Brothers just yeah. in general. So. Uh, this one cracked the top 150 on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, to, which not really surprising. Yeah. This very upbeat, easygoing song, uh, fun to listen to. And it's one that, you know, some songs just have a beat that you don't get sick of. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is one of those songs. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. I always like the Everly Brothers. I don't know how you can not like the 
the Everly Brothers. No, I agree. I mean, their vocals are, it's like butter melting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or o- butter. You know, always, very, always very clean lyrics, always very crisp sounding. Mm-hmm. They just They have a good blend <clears throat> in whatever they do. And this song was written by the same, it's a husband and wife songwriting duo who also wrote Bye Bye Love and Wake Up Little Susie for the Everly Brothers. And the song Love Hurts. For, by Nazareth? Yeah, but it was a, the original was recorded by the Everly Brothers. Interesting. In 1960. Okay. And it was 14 years before Nazareth recorded mm-hmm. in 74. All right, well, number six, anytime you have a song title with a woman's name in it, you know it's mm-hmm. going to be gold. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so much, but in this case, it was gold. Uh, we have Patricia by Perez Prado, and this actually hit number one in mm-hmm. in some top, top 100 charts. Okay. And what I found interesting about this song, because I could hear it after hearing it, which is going to make no sense whatsoever. But this was an orchestra song. Yeah, another. Ins- this is the second instrumental yeah. on the list. So, I mean, obviously, once you know that it's utilized in orchestra, like you can hear it in the song. But the first time I played it, I didn't know that. And it didn't strike me as something that if I'm going to the opera house or mm-hmm. like a, yeah. you know, play on Broadway, that this is the type of song I would hear in the background. Yeah. I don't know. Because a lot of times you think of those as very like either slow, sappy, or very, like, loud-sounding, repetitive beats over and over, and just, mm-hmm. I don't know, this didn't feel like that to me, so. I I enjoyed it. It was, it was okay for what it was. Yeah, it was okay. Okay, now I'm up, let's see, um, Splish? Splish Splash. Splish Splash by Bobby Darren. This song I hold dear, actually, because Ooh. when I was very young... I don't know, maybe six, seven, so that was early 70s. While you were taking a bath. I mentioned it before, my sister gave me a stack of 45s, well, maybe like 10 45s. Those were the first albums I ever owned myself, like, here, do you want, I'm giving these to you, right? Right. Other than listening to albums that my parents or my mom owned, but this was one of them, Splish Splash. So I listened to this many times, the 45. I don't know, this is a fun song, and this is, this is, this list is interesting because we've got three instrumentals, and we also have, I think, three novelty, what I call novelty songs, like fun, Mm -hmm. like humorous songs. I mean, this is a guy who's taking a bath, literally, and all of a sudden, people are coming into his house, and there's a party going on. Yeah. That's in the lyrics. Yeah, what night did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. And, uh... Now, this song also is interesting because it mentions some other, it references some other um, characters from other songs, uh, including, there's a song called Lollipop, he mentions Lollipop, mm-hmm. Peggy Sue, mm-hmm. and Miss Molly. Of course. Good golly, Miss Molly. Absolutely. Yeah. They were and, all partying. Yeah. I did find out that Miss Molly is actually not a reference to that song. Okay, I have here that that um, Jared Atlas, maybe he was one of the writers, claimed that Miss Molly referred to Molly Epstein. And it was Bobby Darren's former English teacher mm, at okay. his high school. Interesting. 
I don't know. I have Gerald Atlas here. I, I guess uh, maybe he wrote the song with Bobby Darren. No, no, wait a minute. It, the song was written with Murray the K, who was a DJ. Okay. Oh, this is interesting, too. Um, he bet that Darren could not write a song that began with the word splish splash. <laughs> I, I was taking a bath. And he wrote it. There you have it. Magic. It became a hit. And we have, let's see, number four, Poor Little Fool, Ricky Nelson. Kind of a bouncy beat going on. And another singer that his voice, I just, it's beautiful. You know, it's just soothing. Mm -hmm. Now this is, Poor Little Fool is actually not about someone else. He's talking about himself. He's in a relationship with a girl who is kind of playing him, mm -hmm. you know. Right. She's just going, sounds like she's going from one guy to the next. Yeah. But he falls in love with her. But he knows he's just one in a line of, you know, other people. He's you a know. pawn in a chess game. Yeah. <laughs> this was recorded April 17th, 1958. And the background vocals, here's a tie-in to Elvis, was recorded by the Jordanaires. Okay. Which was Elvis's backup singers. Right. Uh, it became the first number one song on Billboard's magazine's then-new Hot 100 chart. Ooh. It replaced the magazine's jockeys and top <laughs> 100 <laughs> chart. Now, it was, it was written by Sharon Shealy, and it was first recorded by Ricky Nelson. Ricky Nelson. And she wrote songs for Glenn Campbell and Brenda Lee and Eddie Cochran. She also was the co-creator. There was a big show in the 60s called Shindig. Hmm. Uh, she wrote the song when she was 15 years old. And again, the Elvis link. She had met Elvis, and he encouraged her to write, write songs. And it was based on her disapprovement following a short-lived relationship with Don Everly of the Everly Brothers. <laughs> and she sought out Ricky Nelson to record the tune. Mm -hmm. Get this. She drove to his house, claimed her car had broken down. Uh, he came to her aid, and she sprang the song on him. Nice. That's how she got it, Tom. That's the way to do it. It's bringing steak out to a new uh, yeah. terminology there. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Now, number three, we have Hard-Headed Woman, Elvis. And this was in the film we just watched, King Creole. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not my favorite song by Elvis. No. It's not a great song. I don't know how it got the number three, but I, I assume because of Elvis. I was going to say, I have to feel this one had name appeal. It's like, you know, we like Taylor Swift, but not every song's great. And how she, you know, got some of her songs that are on the top ten aren't the greatest, you know, but it's Taylor Swift. So it's, yeah, I'm comparing Taylor Swift to Elvis. Yes. He probably would have tried to seduce her if he had the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They would have been in a movie together. Yeah. She should start doing movies like Elvis. There you go. Yeah. Well, she was just in a movie. Uh, what's it called? Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. Okay, back to Elvis. Uh, this song reminded me of Blue Suede Shoes. Yeah. The way he's singing it. And there's a trombone in this song I, I don't like either. That song went, actually went to number one. And it was actually two weeks on the R&B charts. And it became a gold record, and it was later recorded by Wanda Jackson. 
So there you go. Hard-headed woman. Number two. This is a fun song. Yakety Yak. Don't talk back. <laughs> By the Coasters. <laughs> There's a wild sax saxophone in this. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Benny Hill kind of thing going on. What was that Benny Hill theme song? No. Was that the one? I think that was called Yakety Sax. That Benny Hill theme song, if I recall correctly. This is a song about doing chores. And I love the deep voice. Don't talk back, like Jeremy just did. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. The one lyric in this, I guess back in the 50s, not a lot of people had uh, washer and dryers. Because it says... You just put on your coat and hat and walk yourself to the laundromat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, so. a good, that's a good lyric. Yeah. <laughs> the instruments in this mm. song are very underrated. <clears throat> just the, the beat itself. You said it's a lot of fun when yeah. you started. It's, it's a really fun song. Now, this was written by Lieber and Stoller, who wrote a lot of hits. And we're gonna, we'll talk about them later, because they'll come up with some Elvis songs. Um, spent seven weeks at number one. And the reference, uh, of course, Yakety Yak is the teenager's response to his parents and their responses don't talk back. Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard this song, listen to it. It's a fun song. Yeah. And the Coasters actually, I think I get them mixed up with other groups from the 50s because I thought they were more a serious band and maybe this was one novelty song they did. But... They did the song Charlie Brown. Uh, I don't know if you know that one. Might. And Along Came Jones, which mm. is like, they're both humorous yeah. <laughs> songs. Um, real quick, because you touched on it. If you haven't heard the song, go out of your way to listen to it. This song is not like a typical 50s song to me. This still holds up today. Oh, as yeah. far as like just being a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah. It's very upbeat, very... This, this could have been released like five years ago by Bruno Mars. It's just got that very up... <laughs> Yeah. Beat energy the entire song. I'm waiting for the Kesha version. (laughs) (laughs) Number one is I mean, if you haven't heard this song, what's that purple? What's that wacky noise they make at the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley. So this is the third and final novelty song we have on there. And George Theragood did a version. Yes. And again, I should have listened to that. Now, this also re- references two songs. Short Shorts, mm-hmm. they mention. Mm-hmm. And there's a little of Tutti Frutti in there. Yeah. You know. I can see that. The, you know what's interesting about this song? It always pops up on any kind of Halloween playlist. And yeah. I don't understand why. Well, I think it's about an alien, some creature, so okay. kind of, you know, purple people eater. I don't know, one-eyed, one-horned, it, yeah. it seems like it's like a little fairy tale kid. Like Monster Mash, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a... <laughs> that one I can understand for yeah. Halloween, but anyway. So, uh, according to Wooly, MGM Records initially rejected the song. It was saying it was not the type of music with which they wanted to be identified with. <laughs> Another interesting thing, I always find these interesting things about these songs, is an acetate of the song, I assume is a, like a, a tape mm-hmm. of the song, mm-hmm. like maybe a reel-to-reel or something. It reached MGM Records' New York office, and it became popular with the office's young people. Up to 50 people would listen to the song at lunchtime. 
Wow. And the front office noticed and reconsidered their decision and decided to release the song. Now, this song is in the film Nope, uh, which came out in 2022, which we've talked about. So, in, in Nope, there's a scene where this guy, cinematographer, is hired to capture an alien on camera. And while preparing to capture the camera footage of the alien, he recites the lyrics from the Purple People Eater. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things about the Purple People Eater is all the different voices that they use. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like Alvin and the Chipmunks at one point, like, jumping in. and Oh, yeah, there's like an alien sped up alien voice in that. So next we're going to talk about albums that are turning 50 that's and, i knew i had 50 on my brain i couldn't and, think of why there we go okay and 40 uh so these are albums from july the first set is from july 1973 july 3rd oh actually i have some news from 1973 oh here we go uh july 3rd david bowie retires his stage persona ziggy stardust in front of a shocked audience at the hammersmith odeon at the end of his british tour but he like, still played his guitar. Yeah. Okay. Ziggy played his... Yeah. <laughs> July 13th, the Everly Brothers break up. Oh. After Phil Everly smashes his guitar on the floor mid- midway through their final show together. Wow. Something out like Oasis would do or something. Yeah. You know? uh, July 28th, Summer Jam at Watkins Glen Rock Festival is attended by 600,000 people. Is that in New York? Watkins Glen, New York. Yeah, I think okay. so. They see the Allman Brothers, the band, the band, and the Grateful Dead. Six hundred thousand people. At least half of those were deadheads. That's more than Taylor Swift is bringing in at a show. I wonder if yeah. they were wearing diapers at the show. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, albums turning fifty. Uh, July first, we have uh, one person who I simply love, and he was gone too soon is Jim Croce. Oh, I always love Jim Croce. Yes, great musician. So Life and Times, his fourth studio album. This had the song Bad Bad Leroy Brown on it. Everybody knows that song. And uh, he was also nominated uh, in 1973 for two Grammy Awards. Now this was his final album to re- be released. Wow. Keep hitting the mic here. <laughs> July, we have some debuts here too. We have a lot of debuts. Okay. Um, Actually, the 50s and the 40s, here we go. But July 13th, we got Queen debut. Oh, good. Solo album, self-titled by EMI Records. Uh, let's see here. They probably didn't have <clears throat> much success. says the album was influenced by heavy metal and progressive rock. Freddie Mercury wrote five of the ten tracks. Uh, Brian May wrote four songs. And the drummer even wrote a song. I can say, you're Modern one. <laughs> times and <laughs> rock and roll. They played their first gig in 1970, and they've been play- they were playing clubs and college circuits around London for almost two years when they were asked to test out the new recording facilities at D-Lane Leia Studios. And I guess they made an album then. So now we have uh, albums from 40 years ago, July 1983. All right. I got one music news. 
July 6th as a statement of protest against music piracy in the form of home taping. Oh. Jean-Michel Jarre releases only one pressing of his latest album, Music for Supermarkets. Okay. <laughs> which is sold at auction to a French real estate dealer for 69,000 francs, which is about $8,960. All right. Is so he- you were... You were up and coming in 83. I was still four years away in the future. Yeah. Would that be cassette tapes pirating, or would that be something else pirating? Yeah, home taping. Because I know Walkmans were still big in the early 90s, so I don't feel like cassettes were around until the late 80s, but I could be wrong on my timeline. I'm just wondering how people were pirating stuff. Could you record on a <laughs> an A-track? <laughs> there might have been video. Okay. You know, like a high eight. It just says home taping. Interesting. I just... It, yeah. It, it, curiosity more than anything. I would now. think like bootlegs or something. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Maybe somebody had one of those like microphone and the, you know, the toy where you can record with the little microphone mm-hmm. at like a concert and then taking it back oh, and yeah. playing it. Reel to reel. <laughs> wheels on it. Yes. The auction also, they did broadcast this album once in a supermarket no on the radio oh good okay they played the album in full for the first and only time so who knows where this album is it's probably on apple music now it's probably selling in an auction house for like a million dollars (laughs) yeah so we have albums from 1983 july 11th robert plant the principle of moments this is the second studio album he, he may have been from a band, I don't know, Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you might know him from there. <laughs> he had his first solo top 40 hit with Big Log. And the most popular track uh, in the U.S. was Other Arms, which reached number one on Billboard. Genesis drummer Phil Collins played drums for five of the album's eight songs. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. And it says, as he did on Pictures at 11, so he also played drums on that. Okay. We have Metallica, their debut, with Kill 'Em All. Kill 'Em All. So they began playing shows in local clubs in Los Angeles. Uh, they recorded several demos to gain attention from club owners, and eventually re- relocated to San Francisco. So the group's uh, "No Life Till Leather" demo tape, nineteen eighty-two, was noticed by Megaforce label head John Zazula. He signed them and provided a budget of fifteen thousand. For recording. That's not a lot. The album was originally intended to be titled Metal Up Your Ass. Oh, I'm sure that would have been a hit. <laughs> and the cover featured a hand clutching a dagger emerging from a toilet bowl. Nice. So That actually sounds really cool. Yeah. But uh, Zazula convinced the band to change the name because distributors feared that releasing an album with such an offensive title and artwork would diminish its chances of commercial success. Hmm. But the album only sold, I say only, 17,000 copies in the U.S. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. We have another debut, and it's Madonna. Her self-titled album. Like a Virgin. July 27th. Um, 1983. I don't know what what album that song was on. No, I think the first one was just Madonna. Okay. Uh, peaked at number eight on Billboard 200. <laughs> There's a fly in oh, here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's waving at me from the side. 
trying to get his attention. This had the song, um, let's see, Everybody on it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Borderline was on this one, too. Yeah. That's my favorite. Her first single is my favorite. Now, other artists uh, we're not going to go into, but I, I can just tell you that debuted were Lita Ford, mm-hmm. Paul Young, mm-hmm. The Water Boys, Suicidal Tendencies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever, you know, the song Institutionalized. Maybe uh, if I heard it. And Wham. Oh, look at that. Okay. I would have guessed the Cars or somebody would have. And I'm not talking this. about Wham. I can't allow it. Okay. Well, Bon Jovi had a release that year too, but you didn't, you can't talk about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, now we're going to talk about the movie. All right. King Creole. Now, this was based on a book, and it was a stone for Danny Fisher. This movie is, I've, I haven't seen, I've probably seen 10 Elvis movies. So, I've never seen this movie before, but I think it's more dramatic, more story-driven than his other, other ones. And yet, Jeremy's first Elvis movie says so nothing to really compare to, but... <laughs> the other ones are more, I was surprised that the, you know, it starts out with music. Yep. And then it takes a good 20 minutes for another song to kick in. Yes. You know. It started very heavily with music and I was a little concerned that we were getting ourselves into one of those musicals where it's mostly singing and not a lot of action. But luckily, to your point, once it got about 20 minutes in, that really leveled out quite well. And it's in black and white, which I think wasn't... It was 1958. I don't think it was as... Maybe color was starting to come in mm-hmm. with some movies. And it takes place in New Orleans. The first scene is uh, a couple people in the street singing. Mm-hmm. and uh, A totally empty street. Yeah. It's like uh, COVID was going on yeah. back then. Yeah. And then Elvis comes out on the balcony, and it's a song Crawfish is singing. Mm-hmm. With some random person. They're singing a duet, but she's nowhere to be seen. Oh, yeah. Because no, I think they show her. It's not the, the neighbor, street. though, I don't think. No, there's a woman in the street. I think yeah. she's singing. It's like a them. black lady. Yeah. 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 Well, I assume. She's in black and white, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I enjoyed the movie. So the movie was, uh, like I said, based on a book, and it was written by Harold Robbins, who was huge. The ice cream reckon- guy? No, that's Baskin. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, sorry. <clears throat> he had 20 flavors of books, though. There you go. But I recognize the name. He was big in the, probably the, into the 60s, 70s. He, re- he wrote a lot of books. <laughs> Now, the book looks at the effect of the Great Depression on the lower middle class Jewish family. There are differences, of course, from the book to the movie. Uh, I think the book was uh, mid-1920s, and the movie, we're going to assume, was 1958. Right. Uh, Freaking fly. Sorry. (laughs) Now, the novel took place in Brooklyn, and the movie was in the French Quarter, New Orleans. And in the book, Danny is a boxer. Mm. So there was no singing in the novel. Right. Uh, And Danny is a singer. Um, High school, 
because Elvis was in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. So he's playing like a 17, 18 year old. Right. Which it reminds me of Greece because they had a lot of older actors playing high school kids. Now, in the novel, one thing that, main thing that doesn't happen in the movie is Danny dies in the novel. Ooh. Now they couldn't have a tragic ending on scene, I guess. Yeah. On screen, sorry. And the title, um, you know, Stone for Danny Fisher is taken from the Jewish tradition of leaving a stone on the headstone when visiting a grave. So let's talk about the movie. Um, so you have Elvis, uh, he's, he's in high school, but he's not going to graduate. And that's in the news now about the school, I think it's in St. Louis, where they're not allowing kids to graduate because of fighting and also um, being, you know, absenteeism, other stuff. I don't know. You get the idea that it, it, Danny was in trouble before, like before the movie starts. Yeah. And he's got these friends, I wouldn't say they're, that are, they call them hoodlums. Yeah. <laughs> hoodlums. Yeah. Who kind of try and pull Danny in. Danny's working at a nightclub, like, but he goes in in the morning to sweep up. Yeah. Then he, he's a bus boy, I guess, after school. But he kind of gets drawn in with these, um, you know, nefarious. The sharks. The sharks. <laughs> <laughs> and the leader is Vic Morrow, was in the Twilight Zone movie and, and sadly was, was, got killed filming it. So he's pretty young in this movie. We got Walter Matthau. He plays Maxie. He's uh, the club owner. Uh, he's really good in the movie. Like, Jeremy brought up that Elvis didn't, doesn't seem like a great actor. <laughs> I mean that respectfully. Yeah. I think there were more lines in this movie than his other movies. It wasn't so much the acting. It was more so the pretending to be singing parts. Okay. I don't yeah. know that he was bad throughout the movie when he was just acting. Yeah. But some of the singing, it just didn't look good. It didn't yeah, look believable. All... Yeah. And the one song, the facial expressions... Where he's smiling. Yeah. Reminded me of Michael Buble. Yeah. Like the way he <laughs> sings. Yeah. It was interesting. And then we have Maxie's, I don't, I guess it's his mistress. I don't think it's his wife. Who he likes to beat up. Yeah. Different time for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of masculinity, masculinity going on in the yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, but she is... Um, well, let's go through the movie here, tell you a little bit about the movie itself, and then we're going to get a little bit into the soundtrack after that. But Jeremy's falling asleep. I am. It's a long day. Okay, so the movie was 116 minutes, so almost... Over two hours. Almost two Almost hours. two hours, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, it, does, it has 100%... Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. 23 reviews. I can't believe... After all these years, there's only 23 reviews. That's crazy. Only 23 people saw the movie. (laughs) (laughs) We're up to 25. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Hal Wallace produced the movie, and he acquired the rights to the novel for $25,000. He intended on giving the lead role of New York boxer to either James Dean or Ben Gazzara. Hmm. I can kind of see a James Dean kind of 
kind of role. Mm-hmm. Especially if they kept it as a boxer. Right. Yeah. Well, the okay, the role was originally written for James Dean, but the project was canceled because he passed away in 1955. So in January 57, uh, following the success of the off-Broadway stage version of the story, Presley was suggested as a possible replacement. And then the uh, character, of course, was changed from boxer to singer, and the location was moved from New York to New Orleans. Of course, we have Elvis as Danny Fisher. We got Carolyn Jones as Ronnie, um, which I started to mention. Uh, She was 27 years old. Oh, in 19... Okay, she was 27 years old in 1959 when she was awarded the Golden Globe for New Star of the Year. Hmm. I didn't realize... And also, Carolyn Jones, you may not know the name, but she was Morticia Adams in the Adams family. And she... I didn't realize she died so young. She was 53 when she died. Hmm. Like I said, Walter Matthau, you know, from The Odd Couple, Bad News Bears, Grumpy Old Men, Dolores Hart as Nellie. She eventually became a nun. That's interesting. In real life. Wow. She left acting in 1963 when she was 24. So she is 17. 17 in this movie. Wow. She looked young. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you say that, she looked very young. And like I said, Vic Morrow as Shark. Jan Shepard as Mimi Fisher. Danny's sister. She was in a lot of westerns like Gunsmoke, The Virginian. She was born in Quakertown. Wow. She is still alive. She is at Wikipedia says 94 or 95. They wow. Don't know. Wow. Yeah. Mr. Evans, who is the school principal, was on the Beverly Hillbillies okay. as Mr. Drysdale. <laughs> if you uh, old people know Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> I know the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> The film was first shown at Lowe's State Theater in New York City, July 2nd, 1958. Uh, during opening week, it ranked number five in box office earnings. And this, I guess it's a magazine, Downbeat, noted, noted let it be noted, here we're noting, <laughs> that Elvis Presley's latest King Creole is his best picture thus far. Comparatively speaking, of course, maybe about 10 more films and as many drama coaches from now, Elvis might begin to get an inkling of what acting's all about. Mm. All right. So they were looking for him to do more drama, which he unfortunately did not do. TV, radio, mirror magazine, they praised his acting over his past roles. And then the Florence Times wrote, the fellow isn't a bad actor. <laughs> of course, he's nothing at all sensational, and the Academy Award isn't in danger. <laughs> but there are Hollywood habitutes who've gotten by for years with less ability. In fact, given the normal amount of the more painstaking type of direction, it is entirely possible that Mr. Wigglehips could develop into a really competent actor. So there's another one. Mr. Wigglehips. Yeah. (laughs) Wallace, uh, who was the producer, selected Michael Curtis, noted director of the Hollywood studio system. He worked on Casablanca. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Mm-hmm. He decided to shoot the film in black and white for dramatic ambiance and give the streets a film noir. Is that how you say it? Film noir. Noir. <laughs> film noir. Oh, okay. Appearance. He also selected the cast. So I think uh, this film also has great actors 
um, you know, around mm -hmm. Elvis. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting because on December 20th, 1957, it's a month before filming was due to begin, Elvis received his draft notice. So, Presley and Paramount had to request special permission to defer Presley's enlistment to allow him to finish the film. Wow. Both pointed out to the draft board that a delay in filming would cost them a huge sum of money invested in the pre-production of the film. So Elvis received a 60-day deferment from January to March hmm. 1958. Uh, it took the filming took place mostly at Paramount in Los Angeles and on location in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And the scene of the bayou, which I was probably towards the end of the film. I was going to say, that was the end, right? Okay. Yeah, it was filmed at Lake uh, Pontchartrain. During filming, Elvis was constantly moved to avoid the crowds of fans who came to see him on location, which delayed the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Wallace had rented a house for Elvis for his privacy, and a second one after his assistants noticed that the back of the house... The back of the houses in the block led to the back of the houses on the adjacent street. And to escape the crowds, Elvis would climb to the roof of one house and cross over onto the roof of another. Oh my goodness. <laughs> After a fan discovered his path, he resided on the 10th floor of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which was rented for the whole cast. And then 14 days after the film was completed, Elvis was officially inducted into the U.S. Army. This was released, uh, I'm sure this doesn't matter, on VHS <laughs> in 1986. And in 2000, it was re-released on DVD, which we watched from the DVD. And Blu-ray, uh, just April 2020 okay. on Blu-ray. I'd give this a watch. If, if you like, I wouldn't, this is the thing. I don't, cons it, this isn't really, it didn't pick up. There's a fly in here. You hear something? It's brother. driving yeah. me nuts. <laughs> It's it's not really a musical no. per se. No. It's a, it's got music where Elvis is singing at the King Creole. Mm -hmm. Not where you know, I consider a musical where they just where they just break out in song mm -hmm. wherever it is. So did you enjoy? I did. Okay. I did. I'd say it was probably like an eight out of ten for me. Yeah. It was initially I was a little concerned. There was a lot of music. Mm -hmm. And I was worried that it was going to be nothing but singing. But then once it got into the storyline, the plot, like the acting did a mm -hmm. great job, meshed together really well. I was entertained throughout most of the movie. There might have been parts here or there that were a little slow, but otherwise it was, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was, I thought it was a good movie. I think it's the best Elvis movie I've, I've seen. I like Viva Las Vegas too. But yeah, and the quality of the DVD... It's not a Blu-ray that we watched, but it's very clear. It's very good. So let's move on, uh, lastly, to the soundtrack. This is the second soundtrack. It was recorded in four days. In Hollywood, radio recorders peaked at number two on the Billboard Top Pop Albums chart. The album was previously released as an EP album with two volumes. 
King Creole Volume 1 and 2, Certified Gold, which is 500,000 albums, on July 15th, ni- oh, 1999, mm-hmm. so took a while. Now, the bulk of the songs originated from a stable of writers contracted to Hill and Range, the publishing company owned by Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker. So Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, which I brought up before, they had a limited contribution uh, because they came to a roadblock with the Colonel during the making of the previous movie, Jailhouse Rock, in which they had practically dominated the musical, says Proceedings. Now, the Colonel was furious that mere songwriters had such easy access to Elvis without going through him. And the Colonel closed off access to Elvis, especially since Lieber and Stoller had tried to influence Elvis's film direction, pitching him an idea to do a gritty adaptation of Nelson Algren's recent novel, A Walk on the Wild Side, and they were going to provide the music. So he didn't like that. But they still managed to have three songs on the King Creole soundtrack, including the title track, Trouble. Now, that's one of my favorite songs. I just, I like that song. Mm-hmm. You got a bunch of things going on in the song. It, it picks up. It's weird because it has this thing in the, at the end where it just picks up and goes off. Right. And then, of course, the song Trouble, uh, Elvis uh, returned with that song for his 1968 comeback special. So like we said before in the top 10, they also wrote Hard-Headed Woman and Don't Ask Me Why. Mm-hmm. So this was first uh, reissued uh, on compact disc in 1988. Uh, in 90, 97, RCA reissued the album again, expanded edition, with an additional seven bonus tracks. And uh, in 2015, it was reissued on the Follow That Dream label special edition that contained the original album tracks along with available alternative takes. There's 11 songs on the soundtrack, and I don't know if all of them were used in the movie. Yeah. If not, they did a pretty... I'd have to say they did 80% at least. Yeah. We had... Let's see. We've got King Creole, As Long As I Have You. I don't remember that one. I'm not sure. Hard-Headed Woman. He did. Trouble. Dixieland Rock. Don't Ask Me Why. Lover Doll. I know he did that song. Mm-hmm. I think he did that in the, um, in the store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a scene in the store where he, of course, he hooks up with the, uh, we'll call them the sharks. I don't think they were called the sharks. The hoodlums. So they want Elvis to go in there and sing while they, he distracts people so that they can steal stuff yeah and then the girl behind the counter saw it happening (laughs) yeah but he's elvis so she still you know wants to be with him yep even though she knows he's a thief well he didn't really do the stealing but there's a a flying air and then the song crawfish oh and the girl is uh this must be the girl kitty white maybe that was it maybe she's in the movie Mm -hmm. that's the girl singing with him this f- fly has to go. <laughs> yes. We got Young Dreams, Steadfast, Loyal and True, and New Orleans. So uh, check out King Creole. Very enjoyable. So that does it for the podcast. 
today. Thanks for listening. All three of us are happy to provide you with the entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> entertainment today. The fly. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. I've never been much of a bather. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, you'll hear us later. Yeah. You've been listening to No Good Music, intro and exit music by the band 99%. Today's show is produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts.